0: Thank you for being a part of what we're doing through our website. In the book of Hebrews, point by point, in a very logical series of arguments, the inspired writer takes his readers to the grand conclusion that Christ is God's answer to the needs of the human race. The Old Testament was a part of a bigger picture. It was a step leading to better things. Moses had an important place in God's plan for the Jews and the giving of their law. But there is a very simple statement in Hebrews chapter 3 that Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses. Everything in Hebrews is moving to the conclusion that Christ is God's answer to the needs of man. The affirmation is made in Hebrews 5 and verse 9, He is the author of eternal salvation, to all who obey him. Well, there comes a time and place for the writer to take his readers to the future and build healthy expectation and anticipation of the second coming of Christ. And that place is Hebrews 9, 27, and 28. The context is Christ appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That has happened. Now, to what will happen in the future, I'm in Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In the first part of our study, it may seem I'm being almost tedious in the attention I give to the text, but I promise I have a destination. I want us to see first something I simply will call certainty. Notice how the writer affirms certainty about the second coming. As it is appointed for men to die once, and then he says, Christ will appear a second time. In English, it would be cumbersome to diagram the sentences here, but what's happening is the writer is communicating certainty by linking one certain thing with another just as men will die, we understand that to be certain, Christ will come again. We do this same sort of thing in our vernacular. I might say something like, just as surely as I'm standing here, and then I would speak of something that has the same certainty as my physical presence. We say those kinds of things to stress the certainty of something we want to talk about, and that's the idea. In Hebrews 9, and 28, the writer assumes that all his readers know they will die. Death is something they witnessed in their families and communities daily. We talk about death and taxes. I'm not sure they spoke just in those terms, but in the original recipients of the Hebrew letter, there was knowledge of the certainty of death. And since his readers regard that as a certainty, the writer uses that to stress something else that is just as certain. Christ will appear a second time. Here is a certainty affirmed by Christ himself and repeatedly declared all through the New Testament. Jesus said, Luke 12, verse 40, The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then when Jesus ascended into heaven, again the promise, This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth discussing the Lord's Supper, he said, Do this. Till he comes. First Corinthians eleven twenty-six. In Philippians three, and verse twenty, Christians eagerly wait for the Savior. In Second Thessalonians five, in verse two, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So this is something Bible students and Christians are well acquainted with. Jesus is coming back, and here at the end of Hebrews nine the writer is stressing the certainty of that and the value of that event to Christ's people. We do not know when. We have no biblical reason to think he's coming to stay and reign on earth, but he's coming back and he will take his people to heaven. There should be in every Christian the highest level of certainty about that, But not just certainty about that future fact, but lively expectation. More about that later. Now look back at the text, and let's explore something else we see. There is order to be observed in these words. And the order or sequence is not without consequence. If we mixed up the order, we would be open to spiritual confusion. Certain terms signify order, after and second. The order is simple, death, then after death, judgment. Death comes first. Jesus came the first time to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He will come the second time apart from sin for salvation. So there is a definite sequence or order. That's part of the way words appear in the text in Hebrews nine twenty-seven and 28. Now, it is important when you read a passage like this and you see sequence or order, not to assume immediacy. I mean by that, it doesn't say right after you die there will be the final judgment day. It just says that after death, the judgment. Likewise, one must not assume immediacy after the first coming of Christ. This was a mistake made by some brethren in Macedonia, in Thessalonica. There was some confusion about how soon Christ would return. Apparently, there were some false teachers who played on that confusion to their advantage, they thought. So it becomes important for the modern Bible student to understand that order does not imply immediacy. In the third place, working through the text in Hebrews nine twenty-seven and 28, let's consider how the writer makes a vital historical reference. Christ was offered once, to bear the sins of many. Now, here's what we're going to call that. That's an event fixed in history, fixed in time. One of the critical arguments in the book of Hebrews is Jesus' death for the remission of our sins was a singular event. Now, here's why that's important. Under the Old Testament system, there were repeated animal sacrifices. Jesus came to fulfill the law, and in his death, a single event, the gift of forgiveness was purchased for all who obey him. The importance of this is observed as you continue to read out of chapter 9 into chapter 10. I want to do that. I want to do some reading now in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to notice that singularity factor in the death of Christ. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, these are the animal sacrifices of the old law, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now pick up on that expression. Once for all. So in Hebrews nine twenty-seven and 28, the inspired writer is careful to state these matters with the greatest clarity. It is certain, just as certain as death. Jesus will come again. There is an order, but that order does not imply immediacy. We don't know when he's coming. We just know he is. And there is the historical fact of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. We add one more thing now in our study of the text, Hebrews nine, twenty-seven and 28. There is future. He will appear a second time. It will not be to die on the cross again. It will be to gather his people and take them home. As stated by Paul in 1 Thessalonians four sixteen through 18 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another with these words. We have been reviewing the New Testament facts about the second coming of Christ based on Hebrews 9:27 and 28, the certainty of the event, the order of death before judgment, his first coming before his second, the history of his once-for-all sacrifice, and then the affirmation of what will happen in the future. He will appear a second time. You know me so well, by now you probably already know I'm not finished yet. And you remember I said I had a destination. So you're saying to yourself, he's fixing to take us somewhere else. I want to talk to us about more than just facts and history and order. I want us to focus now on expectation. Do not overlook this important phrase, to those who eagerly wait for him. That's a statement of the value of the second coming of Christ to his people who serve him and wait for him. It says, those who eagerly wait for him. Can you read that phrase and be confident you are in that number? Do you eagerly wait for him? I want to describe a particular kind of faith or religious thinking that I hope doesn't fit anybody in this listening audience. There is a kind of faith that only wants to escape hell. No great interest in praising and glorifying God, no deep-seated affection for Jesus Christ, just don't want to go to hell. You'll hear people say that very plainly. Preacher, I sure don't want to go to hell. That's understood. But I hope for every one of us it is not just a matter of staying out of hell. We desire to see Christ and be with him because we love him. We shun hell because we know God will not be there. Christ will not be there. One way to tell you what I'm talking about is to say it this way. Jesus is more than just a fire insurance policy. While the activity of our faith in him certainly does provide an escape from eternal wrath, the writers of the New Testament dig much deeper when they speak of the second coming and the expectation of Christ's true people. Look again in our text at that phrase, those who eagerly wait for him. Holding that thought, turn to 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, where Paul, near the end of his life, said, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul doesn't even mention the fire escape motive. He doesn't say, I get to escape hell. That's not his primary focus. He is looking forward to the crown of righteousness. And then he describes himself and other faithful disciples as those who have loved his appearing. So there are two phrases given by the Holy Spirit, and the question for us is, can we read ourselves into these phrases? Am I one of those? eagerly waiting for Christ to return. Can we be included in that phrase, those who have loved his appearing? Genuine, mature faith is more than just knowing the facts, being right about the order, and being efficient in our analysis of a text. In addition to knowing and believing Jesus will come again, The real test of the depth of one's faith is, am I eagerly waiting for his appearing? Loving him, wanting to see him, and be with him forever should be a thrilling prospect. It enables us to conquer worry and stress. It propels us to more effectively be disciples of Christ. It motivates us to motivate others and work together in those things God is directed for his people to do. The eager expectation for Christ is simply an evidence that we not only believe in him, we love him, and not only want to escape the fires of eternal punishment, we want to be with the Father and the Son in heaven forever. Hebrews 9, 27, and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who were eagerly waiting for him. We need faith that gladly holds on to Christ as a treasure, our hope and joy, not just a fire insurance policy. We can do better. We can reach deeper. We can pray more and grow in the activity of our faith. Thank you for listening.